Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, and welcome also to listeners from New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Roger Hart about his new book, The Chinese Roots of Linear Algebra, that came out with the Hopkins University Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that is going to be required reading for anybody interested Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, and welcome also to listeners from New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Roger Hart about his new book, The Chinese Roots of Linear Algebra, that came out with the Hopkins University Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that is going to be required reading for anybody interested in the history of science, um, certainly the history of mathematics in China, but it's also a book that represents... Um, an extraordinarily broad-ranging um, commentary on many of the really important issues that we struggle with and questions that we struggle with um, as um, historians or scholars trying to make sense of what it might look like to do something like the global history of science or mathematics. So in addition to being an, an amazing achievement just for the, simply for the kinds of skills and expertise that Hart brings to this project. Just an amazing facility um, with very difficult um, Chinese mathematical texts, but also a facility for understanding, thinking through, and, and making accessible um, linear algebra um, in, in history and in practice. It's um, a book that um, also speaks to issues of interdisciplinarity. Um, it speaks to issues of how to understand practice um, with respect to the kind of textual documents that we have as historians. It's a book that speaks to a number of different issues, and we had a, very, a really interesting conversation about it that I hope you will enjoy. Hello, Roger. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. We're here today to talk with Roger Hart about his recent book, The Chinese Roots of Linear Algebra, that came out with the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2011. Now, Roger and I have been talking a little bit but, um, about this, but I want to just kind of state again something I've already said, which is um, this is an amazing book. It's an amazing achievement that's founded on what's really a staggering expertise in both Sinology and mathematics, which, which is an exceptionally rare um, combination of kinds of expertise to bring to bear in a project. And it's really going to be on the list of classic texts in the history of Chinese science, if it's not already, for many years to come. So first, Roger, congratulations, because it's an amazing achievement. Um, and thank you, secondly, for being with us today and for making the time. Oh, you're, you're far too kind, and I tremendously appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. My pleasure. So, Roger, could you start us off a little bit um, by kind of going uh, broad scope and talking a little bit about what brought you into the field of Chinese science um, and Chinese mathematics in particular in the first place? Why Chinese science? Why, why China in particular as well? Uh, would you like to hear the... Uh, very short answer, the short answer, or the uh, longer answer? Whatever you'd like, whatever you'd like. If you've never given the longer answer, um, maybe that's, this is a great place to do it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try to be fairly brief. Uh, I went into mathematics uh, because I was very interested in philosophy. And as you know, in the Western tradition, from the Greeks to Descartes to uh, Leibniz up to Russell, Wittgenstein, etc. There's a long history of uh, philosophers uh, focusing on mathematics. Uh, by the time I was in grad school, I realized that mathematics and philosophy no longer had a whole lot to do with each other, uh, especially in the re reactions of my uh, professors in mathematics who uh, uh, were, were not terribly interested in philosophy. So when uh, I had an opportunity to go to China, I went there for one year, I thought. Uh, my Chinese was not fluent after the first year, so I stayed another and another and eventually stayed five years. And when I came back uh, to the U.S., my Chinese was uh, as good as my math, and I was much more interested in that. So uh, then I... Uh, uh, went into grad school in uh, uh, Chinese studies and eventually stumbled on the introduction of Euclid's elements into China. And that gave me uh, a way to use my 
a background in mathematics, my background in uh, Chinese studies, but more importantly, uh, I viewed this at the time as a way to understand uh, the interaction between Western science and Western mathematics and Western reason and traditional Chinese thought. Uh, this initial uh, understanding turned out to be completely wrong, but that's how I got involved in this whole project. And this is a project that started, um, or, or actually I'll phrase it as a question. Can you talk a little bit about the, the change in shape of the project from where it first began? And this was part of uh, research that you did for your dissertation. Is yes. that right? So can you yes. talk, um, because a lot of our listeners are interested, and I'm also interested in hearing about this process of transforming um, your work from the point of dissertation research into what it becomes ultimately. Can you talk about how those transformations in the context of this book in particular? Yes. Uh, you know, like I, I think so many of us do, uh, when we begin formulating our dissertation research, it's a combination of looking at secondary research, uh, looking at theoretical frameworks and primary sources. And uh, <clears throat> so when I began looking at Euclid's elements in China, uh, uh, there were two very important works, uh, one by uh, Jacques Journet about uh uh, incommensurability, and also Jean-Claude Marxloff uh, looked at Euclid's elements and argued that the Chinese did not understand its deductive structure uh, because of an incommensurability between Western languages and, and Chinese. So uh, my initial formulation of, of this whole project was to look at incommensurability, but to argue that their view of incommensurability was not adequately, uh, it, it wasn't precise enough. Uh, so I wanted to look at incommensurability between different kinds of languages, different kinds of social structures, and different kinds of scientific thought. Uh, but as I, I look more into this is, you know, we, we then, uh, uh, usually turn our focus more to primary sources. And uh, the primary sources led me in a completely different direction. So in the end, I jettisoned uh, this uh, entire framework of incommensurability and, you know, uh, sort of to make a, a long story short, in the end, I, I realized that this focus on Euclid's elements in China was really a mystery direction. Uh, it, it was not uh, something of, of uh, considerable importance. And the primary sources, uh, the Chinese primary sources led me to see that. It's so interesting, just kind of um, tangentially. Um, I just recently also spoke with um, Avner Benzakin, who also recently published oh. a book, and who also is, was very concerned with the idea of incommensurability. Um, and it's, it's interesting to think about how um, those of us who look at or who have looked at the history of the exchange or transmission or circulation or movement of science among cultures um, engage either explicitly or, you know, implicitly in terms of um, thinking about the genesis of our projects with this idea of incommensurability. Um, and so it's this itself could, I think. Um, be an interesting historiographical project, a sort of meta project. Um, oh, sometime yes. For yes, I was uh, just uh, this summer, I was at a conference on uh, the 50th anniversary of incommensurability. This was held oh, at, yeah. yes, at, at, in, I, I guess there were, may have been several of these, but this one was uh, at uh, 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 Taiwan National University. And uh, it, it was a very interesting experience because there, there still are people who argue for incommensurability, uh, even though I, I think by this point, the uh, evidence uh, against it is, 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 from my point of view, at least pretty overwhelming. Right. Now, so. 
You just mentioned it in describing what led you or one of the things that um, led you into the shape of the project as it currently stands. You talked about um, an, inv- an early investigation into Euclid's elements in China. And this is also something that you mentioned in the preface. Um, so this is, um, in short, um, you mentioned that inquiry into linear algebra began with the investigation into um, the intro of Euclid's elements into your investigation in China in 1607 by Matteo Ricci and Xu Guangqi. And I mention this because this allows us to talk about um, one of the major themes that comes up at the beginning of the book and that continues to come up later on, um, which is that Xu argued that Chinese mathematics was in a state of decline. And you say that you became increasingly skeptical of this claim. Um, this is uh, this theme of the decline narrative of Chinese math is something that you do respond to in the book. Um, can you talk about that a little bit for our listeners and sort of maybe um, how you think about this problem in the context of the larger historiography of oh, Chinese math, math, mathematics or Chinese yes, science? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, that is, is uh, material that I, I focus more on in uh, the book that's now forthcoming, uh, Imagined uh, Civilizations, China, the West, and the First Encounter. So uh, as, as you know, that book will be uh, out in late uh, 2012. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, so that's where I, I really uh, address the problems of uh, the historiography more. But the assumption has been that that, uh, mathematics during the Ming Dynasty, this is the 17th century, uh, uh, the assumption has been that Chinese mathematics flourished uh, around the 14th and 15th centuries, and then it fell into decline by the 17th century, and that the introduction of Western mathematics by uh, a group of uh, scholar officials uh, who translated Jesuit materials. The assumption has been that uh, they created a kind of renaissance of interest in uh, science. And in fact, this uh, figure, Xu Guangqi, that you talk about, has been asserted to be a convert. Uh, It's been asserted that he uh, found... uh, Western science compelling and therefore uh, accepted uh, Ritchie's Catholic doctrines and converted to Catholicism. Uh, he's been asserted to be uh, Chinese or China's, excuse me, China's greatest polymath. Uh, a recent uh, 2008 conference in his, uh, in uh, commemoration of his work uh, called him. China's greatest polymath. And as I started looking at this material, it struck me that this mathematics was fairly rudimentary, uh, you know, fairly basic. And uh, so uh, he, he called all of Chinese mathematics during the, his period, he called it tattered sandals. And his idea was that we could discard all of Chinese mathematics and adopt the mathematics that he was translating uh, from the Jesuits and adopt Western learning. And his point really was, he was a high official, and his point was that he should be put in charge of astronomy and military matters and other projects. And the reason that he should be put in charge is because Western learning was superior and he was here to help, right? (laughs) Uh, And uh, mathematics actually plays a very interesting role, uh, I think, in evaluating these claims. Because was Xu Guangqi this, uh, you know, Chinese official was he really great at agriculture and water conservancy and astronomy and mathematics and all of these things, uh, military matters? Or was he, like other officials of the period, uh, presenting memorials to the throne on things that he really 
had very little expertise on. Uh, so uh, as I looked into the mathematics, uh, it became clear to me uh, that, uh, you know, he, he had very little expertise in Chinese mathematics, and we can document this. So, you know, was he a great military leader? That's sort of hard to go back and assess because we, we can't be there. Uh, were they correct in their predictions of eclipses? That's also hard to assess. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult question. Uh, is he an expert in mathematics? That we have documents on. That can demonstrate, and uh, the, the point of one of the points of my second book is that not only uh, uh, were his statements about Chinese mathematics false, he clearly knew that because he purloined problems from Chinese mathematical texts and in, they included them in books that made it seem that they were translated from Western sources. And in particular, this is linear algebra. So uh, what, what's interesting to me, uh, and, and as you know, this uh, sort of follows up on Carlo Ginzburg's uh, discussion of the Morellian method, where an art historian looks at things that are seem insignificant, but like ears. But by looking at the ears very closely, then we can see what's authentic, what's a forgery. You know, these are things that someone wouldn't necessarily pay a lot of attention to doctoring or to altering. And we can use clues from this in order to try to uh, uh, take a more critical perspective on history. So the problem has been that Xu Guangqi pronounced that Chinese mathematics was in decline and Western mathematics was in every way superior. And later historians have accepted Xu Guangqi's views as historical fact. In other words, they've just repeated what Xu Guangqi said. Uh, but when we look at the uh, documents, we can see that actually uh, linear algebra was quite developed at this time in China. They recognized it as something that was very important and so important that they purloined problems from Chinese linear algebra in order to make the argument that Western mathematics was in every way superior. Now, this is, um, this is really interesting, and it's interesting in the context also of a historiographical point that you bring up later in the book, and I'll just mention here, um, which is that this is um, the study that you take us through and that we'll, we'll go through um, in the next hour or so is really um, evidence that we ought to be more critical about how, in, in thinking about authorship and expertise, about how much we're believing the claims of literati um, about their own expertise and their own uh, role in developing these kinds of sophisticated mathematical techniques that you take us through in the book, which, as, as we'll talk about, um, may not have had much to do, or that's not fair, that's not necessarily fair, but it, the right way to understand the kinds of techniques you're going to be showing us is not necessarily from the context of literati texts on Chinese mathematics. Yes, yeah. Um, right. Very much agree with your point of view that Li Shijun is a collector. These hmm. people are all collectors, and I, I think that's a very important insight. Yes. So one of the things that you mentioned, um, uh, and, and this is, um, there are many really interesting historiographical and methodological contributions that this book makes. In addition to being a very, very detailed and carefully worked out treatment of a particular kinds of problems in linear algebra. Um, but one of the um, central theses of the book, as you presented to us, actually speaks to something you very briefly um, mentioned, which is uh, in your mention of clues and the ear and sort of uh, painting and visuality. One of the things that you're arguing here um, is that visualization 
space or to sort of step from that um, is was extraordinarily important to the solution of linear algebra problems. Um, and this is in the context in particular of um, this uh, imperial Chinese mathematical history as you um, bring it here, but perhaps more broadly as well. So can you say a little bit about this? Because this seems, this point about visualization and visuality seems to have much broader implications potentially than simply for this kind of problem. And I think it's really interesting for scholars of STS, for example, more generally. Yes. Well, I, you know, this was one of the uh, last things that I realized in writing the book, but I, I, my own feeling is, is it's one of the most important and that is when I began to look at this problem, I conflated texts and practice. And I think that's very common in our field. We talk about practice, but as historians, we value texts. And so we try to read the text, try to understand the text, work very hard to track down all of the references and to get the translation right and stuff like that. But uh, 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 as, as I was nearing completion of this book, I realized that the text, uh, the, these mathematical treatises only preserve traces of the mathematical practices. So it's like the tip of an iceberg. You, 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 you see the tip and you don't want to mistake that for the whole iceberg. That could be fatal, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what I, I found in looking at these mathematical problems is that the mathematical problems were solved on a two-dimensional counting board. And they were solved using very, very simple patterns. And once you understand the patterns, you apply it again and again and again, almost mechanically. And the remarkable thing is that you can solve extraordinarily difficult problems in linear algebra, which is in equations, in, in unknowns. You can solve these very difficult problems uh, just by following these simple patterns. If you know addition and subtraction and division and a little bit about fractions. So this does not require literacy. Uh, you know, the, this is very simple practice, uh, that, that you can be trained in. And, uh, I, I realized that to translate this two dimensional visual practice, into one-dimensional narrative, and especially one-dimensional classical Chinese. So to turn this into a one-dimensional story makes it intelligent. So the, uh, in, in the case of linear algebra, these practices have to be transmitted uh, by showing people how to solve the problems on the counting board. And the records of these practices in classical Chinese, if you are not already expert in the practice, you can't possibly understand what the text is saying. So one of the uh, uh, sort of implications for this is that, well, then why are people recording this? And in the Chinese case, and I, I think arguably also in the European case, early uh, modern European texts, uh, these texts were often used for purposes of patronage, to gain patronage or displays of knowledge. They're not... Uh, we, we don't want to confuse the historical archive, these texts, with the world. They give us evidence about the world, but the world practice is so much broader than what is preserved in these texts. That's great. And, and that, this is actually something that I wanted to um, ask you about as well, uh, this, this issue of um, practice versus text. I think this is one of the uh, really insightful contributions that this book makes. And, and I think um, this is one of the reasons why I really recommend listeners who 
who may not have any background or any specific interest even really in the history of mathematics to look through this book. Because even if um, readers can't follow every step along the way of every single one of the reconstructions of the practices. Um, it, like, you know, if you pick up an art history book, you're not necessarily as somebody untrained in the practice of reading a painting going to be able to follow every single move that a trained art historian is going to make in each of the detailed chapters. But looking, but you do have then a resource for understanding that practice when you need it. And I think the book itself that you've given us is about much more than just these particular practices. And, and this is one of the ways, both the point about the, the importance of visualization, but also the related broader historiographical point about um, practice and its relationship to text. I think this is something that all of us could use um, a more critical reflection on. And, and this is one of the great contributions of the book, I think. Well, thank you. I, I think, you know, many people are, are uh, moving towards a, a focus on practice and it's, mm -hmm. you know, a, a little bit difficult to sort of flesh out what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, I think that it is extremely important for us to go from, as historians, from this focus on texts. And if you think about it, the focus on texts has also led to a kind of hagiographic focus mm -hmm. because we, we, we focus on the text and then we, as, as historians, sort of naturally attribute to that text uh, a priority in discovering these things. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly we're writing a historiography or excuse me, a hagiography right. of our, uh, you know, the, the person we're looking at. And uh, what has become very clear to me from the mathematical evidence in Chinese sources is that the people recording this, they're kind of ethnographers. They're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're recording what they see, but they're not experts. They don't understand much more than sort of the basics. And uh, there, there's considerable evidence that the practices are considerably more sophisticated than our uh, ethnographers tell us. And so one of the sort of mistakes I think we've made as historians of science is, and I, I mentioned this phrase in my book, is that we give credit to those who claimed it for themselves. So the person who records these practices takes it to the imperial court, says to the court, if you want to order the empire, you must know about these linear algebra practices that I have recorded for you. Uh, we tend to then, he, he's seeking credit in court, and we tend to give credit to him as being one of the great mathematicians in Chinese history. And the evidence from linear algebra is that that's not true. They're reporting things. They're bringing it to court. Uh, they certainly have some understanding of these practices, but they're not the ones who are doing the very difficult calculations. And this actually brings us right into um, another thing I wanted to make sure to talk about, which is the practices themselves, right? So let's let's get right into it. Um, so oh. what, <laughs> so and and don't worry, I'll try to I'll keep this relatively broad, but but let's you know I think um, we can get into some detail. So one of the central concepts in the book and um, the term for these practices that we've talked about is feng cheng, yeah. and you um, you say that feng cheng has been translated before as matrices or rectangular arrays um, because this is such a central. Um, focus of, of the book. Can you say a little bit about um, Feng Cheng? What is that? For someone who may not know anything about mathematics, um, what's Feng Cheng? How do they understand that? Okay, well, I'll, I'll back up and, and say a little bit about linear algebra. That, sure. uh, that linear algebra, as is, 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 you know, is, is one of the two or three uh, main courses uh, at the advanced high school or the beginning undergraduate level. So there's calculus, linear algebra, differential equations. Those are 
often, you know, the three main courses. And uh, so what linear algebra does is you are given n equations where n can be any number from one up to whatever. You're given n equations and you're also given uh, n equations in n unknowns. And it turns out that those problems will usually have a solution. Uh, so uh, one way to solve them is uh, a method that has been called Gaussian elimination. And so uh, that is a, a method where you eliminate entries in this matrix, this n-by-n array of numbers. You uh, use certain procedures to eliminate uh, entries to wind up with a solution for the uh, nth unknown. And then you use what is called back substitution to find the uh, solution to all n unknowns. So in other words, if you have three equations and three unknowns, using Gaussian elimination, you can eliminate uh, various entries to find the solution to the third unknown. You use the third unknown to find the second unknown. You use the second and third unknown to find the first unknown. So you found all three unknowns. Uh, there's another method uh, called determinants. Uh, and that, that involves multiplications of entries, not elimination of entries, but multiplication of entries. Uh, determinants is a more complicated method that uh, 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 really requires either a very small matrix or else a matrix with a lot of zeros. Uh, and so as I explain in my book, uh, as the matrix gets larger, the computation becomes impossibly difficult. So Gaussian elimination is uh, what has been called the most important matrix algorithm in modern-day uh, linear algebra. Uh, Gaussian elimination is the best way to solve these, and determinants is an interesting alternative that turns out to be very complicated. <laughs> now, uh, what I uh, uh, found in my book is that uh, it, it's long been known that uh, there are records of a procedure for solving matrices, for solving linear equations, that is similar to Gaussian elimination, that is recorded in the uh, earliest uh, transmitted text in Chinese mathematics. So uh, the, the earliest Chinese classic in mathematics has an entire chapter on what we would today call linear algebra, the title to that chapter is Fangcheng, the word I use in my book to describe it. Uh, and what I'm trying to get across is that these methods are really identical, uh, uh, essentially speaking. Uh, and so the way that the Chinese lay out a matrix and the way we do it today is identical, except the Chinese uh, write from top to bottom and right to left, we write from left to right and top to bottom. So the orientation of the matrix is turned, but the matrix is written in exactly what we call the form of an augmented matrix today. Uh, what we today call Gaussian elimination, uh, the elimination procedure in the nine chapters, and this is from about 100 A.D., in China. The elimination procedure uh, is uh, exactly one form of what we today call Gaussian elimination. Uh, it turns out that they have a method of back substitution that is a little bit more sophisticated mm -hmm. than what we use today. Uh, and I, I won't get into this, but the reason that they're using a more sophisticated method is they want to avoid fractions. 
They want to avoid, they, they have a, a matrix, a rectangular array of n by n or n plus one by n, uh, uh, numbers, uh, on, on, on a counting board. And fractions would require that you use, you, you put two numbers in the place that they have for one. So you can see that they're already using their two dimensions. Mm-hmm. And were they to try to put fractions into this, they'd have a mess. So basically, uh, uh, again, Gaussian elimination is found in the nine chapters from uh, 100 AD in China. And that's been known. What has been uh, assumed about this is that there was no connection between uh, China and what is called the West. So it's been assumed that Gauss uh, discovered Gaussian elimination. And then in 2011, I believe, uh, an important article came out in Historia Mathematica arguing that it was Newton, Isaac Newton, that discovered uh, Gaussian elimination. And that uh, 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 and, and the title of this uh, paper is, is very interesting. It's a very good paper. It's how ordinary elimination became Gaussian elimination. So the idea is that Newton used this method, and then later this method circulates in Europe, and finally Gauss's name becomes attached to this. Mm-hmm. Again, Gaussian elimination is the single most important matrix algorithm for this very, very important subject, which is linear algebra. It's almost the equal of calculus. Okay. Right. Now, uh, so, uh, 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 so, so to, to, to sort of go back, if you understand a little bit about linear algebra, then you sort of understand what they were doing in China because it's the same. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the assumption has been, and, and, and it's an assumption that uh, remains in my book. The assumption has been that uh, China, Chinese linear algebra may not have influenced Western work in linear algebra. Mm-hmm. So in my book, uh, in the conclusion, uh, what I state is that Leibniz and Gauss were not the first to discover these methods. Mm-hmm. And at the time that the book was published, that was all that I felt that I could uh, say uh, 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 with proof mm-hmm. that we were historians, which is documentary proof, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I, I suspected that this might have circulated. It seemed logical that it might have circulated. But as historians, uh, you know, and, and this is, is something where my view is, is now changing as I shift more to practice. Mm-hmm. As a historian, I wanted to find documentary evidence that the matrices that the Chinese were working on mm-hmm. wound up. And I'd looked at a lot of sources. I'd come up handed. I'd emailed experts in European linear algebra, and they said, no, we haven't seen those. And so uh, in the end, uh, I put the most distinctive Chinese linear algebra problem mm-hmm. as the cover of my book. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't if you have a copy that has the cover. I do. I do. Yeah. So that, that is in nine unknowns mm-hmm. and it's filled with zeros. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you look at it, it's, it's mostly zeros and you have a main diagonal along what is sometimes called the super diagonal, mm-hmm. and the key thing is that you also have one entry in the upper left-hand corner. Right. So all the rest of this is zeros except the two diagonals mm-hmm. and 
tree in the corner. Mm -hmm. And uh, these uh, uh, matrices of this firm are matrices in dozens of Western mathematical texts, modern texts. Mm -hmm. So thousands of matrices. Uh, I found one, three by three that was similar to this one out of thousand, mm -hmm. 10,000. Uh, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It's very hesitant, uh, not having this documentary evidence mm -hmm. to say that these, uh, methods from China, mm -hmm. uh, were uh, found up in the West. And a lot of the reason is because we have this China West dichotomy. Right. That that uh, uh, first from the view that uh, science is Western from the early 20th century. Uh huh. This is it from the point of of China has science, and so he sets up this horse race uh -huh. of China versus the West, mm -hmm. and he calls his entire series to which we're all so tremendously in debt is he calls it science and civilization in China. So the, uh, you know, one of the main problems here in my own thinking was despite all the criticisms that I have gone through about China and the West, I still in some sense accepted this. Now, uh, uh, and, and so Having found it in China, I was reticent to say that this is what we see in Europe. Uh, about uh, maybe six months, eight months after this was published, uh, I made a, a very interesting find, and, and that was that problems of this sort that are on the cover mm -hmm. I found in Fibonacci. So, uh, mm -hmm is that, in fact, these are practices that are circulating throughout Eurasia. Right. Think about it. It makes perfect sense. You don't have to be literate. You don't have to, uh, you know, memorize the four books uh -huh. of Jews, the five Confucian classics in order to do this. Travelers or, or you know, uh, traders, people who interact with other cultures can demonstrate this game. Well, they quite an extraordinary trick to say that we have five equations in five unknowns and you give me the answer, okay? Uh, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary that solutions exist, but to teach this and to transmit this, you don't have to have a book going from one place to right. another. You have someone showing how to do this on a counting board. And if you are competent enough in mathematics to trade with other groups, you probably have the competence to learn this mathematical trick. So, you know, they're... they're oh, uh, but, but what I can say with uh, some certainty is that these problems uh, that I describe in my book on Chinese linear algebra are so distinctive that they can serve as a kind of fingerprint. Hmm. They're so unusual. They're, they're so bizarre almost that they can serve as a kind of fingerprint. And when I found these recorded in Fibonacci, then I knew that this was a practice that had circulated throughout Eurasia. And then on rare occasions, you have like Fibonacci recording this, or you have one in China recording this, but it's a, you know, a much broader practice that people record, uh, you know, uh, very rarely, but it, it gives us that tip of an iceberg to see that there's, a lot more going on during the period. 
And one of the really fascinating things about this is that it was speaking to an interest in um, not just holding uh, sort of China and the West um, dichotomy here. I mean, one of the things that I think you do really well in this um, book in particular is to help undermine that to some extent also by showing through this um, study of feng chong practices that this is also a way for us to start being a little bit more careful about how we think about popular versus elite mathematics, right? That this wasn't just, I mean, people who don't know much about this field might come to this and have a very totalizing view of Chinese mathematics as if this all looks one way, it's all done in one context. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about Fang Chung pra practice and practitioners um, is something that you've mentioned. I mean, you mentioned you don't have to be literate um, to yeah. be able to do this, right? And in fact, we don't know much about, um, I mean, I could ask you, um, for listeners who might be interested in, you know, who are these Feng Chung practitioners? We don't know much about them, right? I, so we, we don't know who was training in this, who was using this, but what we do, um, what we can say a little bit about through this, and what you have said a little bit about through this, um, is the way that this might speak to understanding the relationship between elite and popular mathematics in China, right? And so, yes. um, can you say a little bit about that um, in the, in the context of this? And um, it's I, and I ask for a number of reasons. One, because um, this issue of tracing practices and literacy seems very much to sort of to raise this, but also because many of the examples of the problems that you give us and readers who might work through the text or those who might not work through all of the details of all of those chapters um, will realize or should realize that the examples are very, uh, what, what we might call practical, right? These are examples like how do you measure um, the amount of grain coming out of a certain, you know, dimensions of a field of rice? How do you measure the length of a well? Um, you, you mentioned that feng cheng as a term comes up um, largely in or in, in its most early forms, perhaps, in the context of taxation. And so this is another set of really interesting issues, I think, um, that, that the book speaks to. So can you speak to some aspect of this? Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Those are very interesting questions and very helpful. Uh, the first, uh, and, and this is a view that uh, I'm, I'm still in the middle of trying to digest myself, but mm -hmm. what became clear to me after writing this is that the people that we have, again, worshipped as the great Chinese mathematicians were only the people whose names were attached to texts that had been preserved by the court. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that is what we've called the elite mathematicians, mm -hmm. these people who uh, uh, are, are uh, uh, very well trained in Confucianism and they're, you know, uh, uh, so, but uh, the, the problems that they record, I can see uh, that the methods that they are using are not the best methods uh, that a practitioner would have used. That they're recording things, they're doing them in sort of the most elementary way, when in fact the problem itself, like this problem that's on my cover, has a very special solution that we have a record for, but almost none of the authors that we have record the specialized solution. They all record the simple solution. So what we've looked at in the Chinese case and identified as the elite are in fact not the people who were the adepts at solving this. And, you know, it, it makes sense. If you think of someone uh, spending, you know, a substantial portion of their life trying to calculate numbers on this, uh, you know, arrays of numbers on this counting board and finding special methods and stuff. It's likely that such a person is not going to be a high official in court and vice versa. If you're a high official in court, you're not going to spend all of your time with this board game. And if you're spending all of this time with your board game, you probably cannot become a high official, right? So, uh, but more, more generally speaking, uh, I think 
that uh, the people who are developing uh, science in the period before the scientific revolution are not people who are necessarily writing about it. So I think that we've really, in, in some sense, misdirected our focus again on texts and the people who produced them instead of focusing on the practices that turn out to be incredibly important uh, as, uh, you know, in, in, uh, as linear algebra is now. Now, now one thing I, I do want to suggest, though, about this linear algebra is, uh, in, in my view, this was likely uh, essentially a game. Uh, it is something for which there I have found no practical applications. And so what happens is, is actually very fascinating, that problems that are pretextual, problems that are all made up, problems that you would never solve using linear algebra, are given this facade of practicality when they're recorded in words to be presented to the court. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, the people who are sort of the middlemen, the people who are ethnographers who are recording this and getting credit for it, they're trying to persuade the court that this actually is important and practical. <laughs> when, you know, for the period I study, uh, I, I really have not yet found a practical application for this. So to give you a, a very simple example, um, uh, and this is one of my favorite examples, it, it's the well problem. So it's yes. a version of, of the problem that is uh, on the cover of my book, uh, but it's five equations and five unknowns. And to, uh, I'll try to explain this quickly, but the, it, it's, you, you have, it, it's, what we would now call five equations in five unknowns. And the problem goes like this. There are five families, and each family has ropes of a different length. So A has ropes of the length of A's ropes. B has several ropes, all the same, but the length of B, C, etc. And so the problem is set up like this. Uh, two of A's ropes plus one of B's ropes reaches the depth, the unknown depth of a well. Uh, then three of B's ropes plus one of C's ropes reaches this bottom of a well of unknown depth. Then four of D and one of E and etc. So you have uh, five equations, and in this case, you actually have six unknowns because the depth of the well is not unknown. <laughs> Now, uh, you can't solve that in linear algebra. And so what they do is they suddenly say the depth of the well is 721. How did they get that? Well, in, in my book, I explain that what they're actually doing is using a determinantal calculation. So they're multiplying these uh, diagonals and they're adding the one in the corner and they wind up with what today we would call a determinant. And what does that do for them? What it does for them is that if in their problem uh, the depth of the well is not zero, there will always be a solution to their problem. So one of the complexities of linear algebra is you can have five equations in five unknowns and have no solution. And I won't get into the reasons for that. But the way they set up the well problem, if their well has a, a depth, there will always be a solution. So uh, in any case, to go back to this well problem, the well problem is sort of the exemplar uh, of these sort of bizarre problems they're doing. It's what I call this fingerprint, the thing I find in Fibonacci. Uh, and one of the keys is it's in equations and n plus one unknowns, and they find the n plus one unknown by determinantal method 
And this is, uh, we don't do this today. I, I mean, there are no such problems in N equations in N plus one unknown. So in any case, uh, uh, this is a very distinctive problem, but it's absolutely impractical. Mm -hmm. uh, five families with ropes of unknown length and a well of unknown depth, what do you do? You measure your ropes, right? <laughs> and then you put the ropes down the well, you measure the well, okay? You would not take your ropes and combine them, two of A's, one of B, happens to reach the well of unknown depth. Uh, you know, uh, three of B's, one of C's, happens to reach this. Great, now we're going to use linear algebra to solve five equations in five unknowns to the depth of the well and the length of the ropes. It, it's, it's, it's absurd. But much of the mathematics during this period uh, is, uh, when it's recorded, it's recorded in these word uh, uh, problems uh, uh, that seem in some sense to be practical. But when we look at them closely, we say, no, you know, that's an entirely fabricated. It, it's textual. And so of 18 problems in the nine chapters, in this Fang Cheng chapter, chapter eight, of the 18 problems, there is not a single problem there that has uh, practical implications. Any of those problems you would solve in a very different way. You would never use linear algebra to solve those problems. So why this veneer of practicality? Sort of why choose that particular kind of rhetoric? Present to... to the court. Uh -huh. I, I do, you know, uh, uh, there, and, and if you look at the prefaces to many of these mathematical treatises, it's extraordinary. They're saying to the emperor, if you want to order all under heaven, mm -hmm. need to know this mathematical practice. Mm -hmm. or, and, and so, you know, there, there's a very interesting phenomena of uh, people presenting practices, whether it's astronomy or medicine, is offered to the court to order the state. So if you look at the uh, inner Class, the, the, the inner classic of the Yellow Lord, the Huangdi, Nei Jing. If, if you look at that, and you look at the preface, and you look at many of the passages, many of the passages explicitly that through this kind of politicized medicine that the uh, state will be ordered in the same way medicine is ordered. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you look at the uh, record of music, the Yueji, it states explicitly that the order of government is the order of music. So there's always the attempt to uh, convince the court, to persuade the court that uh, music or medicine or philology, the shapes of characters, or mathematics, or astronomy, all of these are going to help the emperor order all under heaven. And that's why they're being presented. Great. Well, Roger, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, and there's there's much more in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. And um, for listeners, I mean, each, each one of these concepts that we've been talking about, including determinantal style solutions and Feng Chung problems and um, these are all worked out um, in extraordinary detail with particular examples provided in the book. And so listeners can consult those chapters and find um, a very detailed explication of all of these kinds of concepts. And in a work that I think um, has we've already shown in the course of this um, discussion has broad ramifications beyond um, simply the field of Chinese mathematics, um, even though it's also clearly a, a banner publication in that field as well. Um, so, Roger, is there anything in particular that you want to make clear for listeners who may not have had a chance to read the book? Um, and then uh, anything about the book that we didn't have a chance to cover that you want to put out there for listeners? Uh, 
Yes, maybe just very briefly. Um, you know, when I, I look back at the work, uh, what I think is most interesting is hopefully its broader implications that the contributions that have created something like linear algebra, which is now really, really important. This has happened in very chance ways, in, in very surprising ways, uh, over uh, hundreds of years, probably thousands or ten thousands of people playing an odd board game that seemed at the time, you know, to have a very different significance. And then today we find this one of our most important sort of mathematical results. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I think what it points to is that in looking at uh, the, the history of science, before the scientific revolution, that if we concentrate on practices rather than the uh, alleged great scientists of the past, uh, that, that we'll shift away from this view of civilizations and elites as having uh, provided to us, sort of magically almost, uh, uh, you know, these techniques, we'll, we'll, we'll see that actually this was the uh, result of a tremendous amount of work in places that people didn't know what to expect and weren't necessarily shooting for, uh, you know, creating modern mathematics, but accidentally did so. So I, I think that when we look back at the history of science, we're going to see a lot more chance, a lot less teleology, mm -hmm. uh, a lot less genius, and a lot more uh, practices being circulated and combined in, in ways that are completely fortuitous. Now, I, we've already mentioned that you've also got another book coming out um, into just this year, 2012. And so we'll eagerly look forward to that. And because um, you said a little bit about that, I'm not going to close by asking you to say too much more about that. Um, okay. but we will put a, I will put a link to that on the, on the site when this goes up. Instead, I'm going to um, ask you if we can close by going at this end of our conversation to the beginning, um, the beginning oh. of the book. And the beginning of the book in the introduction, um, you have a, a really lovely quotation um, from Ludwig Wittgenstein's remarks on the foundations of mathematics. And this is maybe a good place for us to sort of collect this together and then point outward. Imagine the geometry of four-dimensional space, um, says Wittgenstein, done with a view to learning about the living conditions of spirits. Does this mean that it is not mathematics? Um, this is a, a wonderful quote. Um, and can you yes. um, maybe can we close by um, saying a little bit about this? How does this speak to the, the general themes of the work for you now? And also maybe as we look forward to um, what's to come from you and your, your future work. Okay, well, as, as I, I, I mentioned uh, when we were chatting before the uh, interview, uh, in, in this book, I, I did not uh, discuss sort of the theoretical background of my work, but I, I do think that that's very important. And, and one of the things that uh, many uh, scholars in the late 20th century, I think, emphasize, and I think it's very, very important, is a critical approach and also a kind of genealogical approach where we understand that something that plays a certain role within one uh, context may be doing something very different in another context. So this book is titled Chinese Roots of Linear Algebra. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to the uh, 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 the the editor of uh, or the chief editor of Johns Hopkins University uh, who proposed that title as sort of a pun. Uh, roots is a mathematical term, but also it suggests that you know there may be uh, the beginnings of linear algebra in China, 
And uh, it turns out that actually that's true, or that, you know, this was a Eurasian practice. But I also, uh, in, in accepting that title, uh, roots meant something else for me. And as you know, roots, uh, there's another metaphor for roots, not the tree, but the rhizome. And I think that's a very nice metaphor for the way I see these linear algebra practices, that they develop in one context, in one environment, and then they shoot off into another environment and become something quite different for quite different purposes. So I think that as, uh, you know, and, and I'm only a small part of this larger movement, I think, that, of course, you and many others are, are part of. But the uh, I think that as we begin to look more closely at the history of science, we begin to see very interesting discontinuities and very interesting changes in things that were completely unexpected when we began to look at our sources. So we began to look at our projects with a received just-so narrative, the grand narrative. Mm -hmm. We look back at the primary sources and we suddenly find things are completely different than what we were told. So I think that's the task of the historian, and I, I think that that will have important implications for our understanding of not just science, but society in general. Well, Roger, thank you so much. Um, it's well, an amazing you. book. It's an extraordinary accomplishment, and we'll look forward to reading the next one, and perhaps we can talk about that one, too, when it comes out. Okay. Well, I tremendously appreciate your taking the time, and uh, it was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time.